pretty much every story has been written. So it's the journey that really keeps you in the seat. The only thing that keeps you in the seat is a guy like Brando or a few of those guys who have an unpredictability about him. And I think it's the unpredictability that makes him a star. Hi, this is Patrick, and this is my interview with James Kahn. Full disclosure, I met James mm, 14 years ago. I'm really close with Scott, his son. We even got the chance to make a movie together. On this day in Beverly Hills, California, I remember we started out at his place looking at all kinds of awards and stuff. Uh, James is somebody that has the best wall of fame I've ever seen. I've never seen a wall of fame that compares. And I got lucky enough to be in a few houses in my life. But his is insane. What draws me to James Caan is he's like such like the everyman. He has such a movie star and a screen presence. Um, he has such swagger that I've never seen. I haven't seen it before, I haven't seen it since. There's only, you know, there's only one James Caan. This is my interview with James Caan. So my, my favorite memory in my, my filmmaking life was I got to go up to your house and describe what we were doing with Mercy. You were on the phone and you were talking to Duvall and my favorite moment ever was when you, you got rid of him and you said, I can't talk, my director's here. I went home and I called my dad and told him I had arrived and it was okay, I didn't need to borrow money anymore. That was my... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember... Well, uh, you didn't know what Bobby was talking about, steak. You know, <laughs> that's his favorite subject. That's the greatest steak ever. <laughs> Bobby, I gotta go. My director's here. What do you remember from Mercy? The fun of um, working with Scott. You know, he's... Uh, he used to be my little pride and joy, you know? Yeah. I was torn between you two. It was fun. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> What was it like going from acting and everything to doing hide in plain sight when you go from directing? After you've been directed so many times and then you're directing. Well, I mean, it turned out to be pretty good. At first, I didn't want any part of it because it was just too much work. <laughs> I'm just, like, lazy, you know. But when they came to me with it, it was very episodic in its nature. I had, like, 149 scenes, so... Wow. I said, well, you know, get Hal Ashby or somebody with style, because I don't want to do it unless the guy has style. If you shoot it conventionally, you know, and they go master, close up, close up, close up. It, 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 you know, it looked like a ping pong match. You can't do that, <laughs> you know? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, for me, I'd shoot it in masters, you know, mm -hmm. because you're going from here to there, to, you know, 30 seconds in this location, another minute in this location, you know? And I wanted to shoot it like a semi-documentary, and they said, why don't you direct it? I said, that, that doesn't sound really good, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then I got into it, went rewrote it the last three days before we left. Locked my secretary in the room, we stayed up for three days. I worked good under pressure. Just you know? worked over the whole script. Yeah. And then it was great because I went to New York to cast it. I picked people that pretty much nobody knew. So as a documentary, they said who I said they were immediately. You know, it wasn't like Al Pacino, you know, maybe you forget that it's Al Pacino in 15 minutes and then, you know, but you got to, at first you go, oh, it's Al Pacino, you know, it's Bobby Duval. So, um, yeah, Jill Eikenberry was in it. My gift to America was Danny Aiello. I gave him a role in it. That's, oh, my, wow. that's my great gift to America, the professional Italian I got in. in. But I had a lot of good people, Joe Gravasi. And Didn't you have a curious AD or an assistant or somebody that sat through a set? Blackie Malcolm. Barry Blackie Malcolm. Malcolm. Yeah who was, uh, for those who don't know, was Francis Coppola's editor for 
years and years. He's a great, great guy. And uh, I guess he came to say hi, maybe with Francis, mm -hmm. kicking the ass from Francis or something. By the way, I want to go on record. There is nothing more boring than an actor talking about acting, ever, on television, on mm. wherever it is. So now that I've said that, I'm going to talk a little no, about acting. And if you feel like shutting the thing off, shut it off. But, <laughs> but Francis said, Jimmy, always match up. I said, oh, good, 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 Francis. I had no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. But thanks, you know, from the master. That's pretty good. Thank you, buddy. I got you. So, what do you mean? So when Blackie came, what the hell does match up mean? <laughs> so what he meant, which was, it's a, it's a great tip for all young directors, all directors actually, because very few do. Now, if you have a good cast, which is necessary for this to work, and people who are available, the things who don't study their lines in the mirror the night before, so if I slap them or kiss them, they're going to give me the same response they had at the mirror, which is another thing I hate. He said, let's say you're shooting a master of this, these two couples that come in for dinner at a restaurant, okay? So you shoot your master, you know, and they come in through the door and they take them to the maitre d' whatever, or yes, you have a reservation, boom, they leads them into this big restaurant to their table, okay? The next shot, you have a master of the table, you know, whatever from here, and then a closer master, right? And then you come in, you do a two shot of here. And then all of a sudden, in, or you come around and do this other two shot, and in the second two shot, this girl, this actress, by accident, she spilled this glass of wine. And they all went on, and they all, got, thank God, stayed in it, you know? They just, you know, it was like the greatest moment ever. You, you can't make those moments, you know? But if they happen, someone says, oh, shit, I'm sorry. No, just shut up and keep going. You know, it's good. Exactly. So if it was a great moment, because when you think about it, when you think about movies that you really love, I guarantee you that even you or anybody... There's always two scenes of that movie that stick out in your head, you know, like one or two moments that made that film special for you. So if you're lucky to get one or two or three of those moments, mm -hmm. you pretty much have a pretty good film already, you know, I mean, when they're special. So what Frances meant was when she spilled the wine and everybody does a thing and cleaning up and they apologize and there's a giggle and there's a thing or whatever, go back and match up, match everything to that moment. So I go back and shoot the master of the the table again, shoot the other close-up again, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what you meant about matching up to the best. Remember another thing Did you, you learn told anything me? there? Yeah, I did. Would you pay me? Not yet. Okay. You told me uh, unpredictability. You went on forever. That's the one thing you taught me when I was about to make a film. Well, it's true. I was terrified, true. and you said, you want an unpredictability. You want, They yeah. have it, he well, has it, some people don't have it. Absolutely. That's yeah. the only thing that today, look, the reality is when you look at the big stars of, you know, when acting became more of a, an art mm -hmm. than it was. Then it was stars, and, which was great. I mean, we went to them all. And the, and the characters and the words and the songs were everything. I mean, all the stories have been told, right? The Greeks told them, you know, the Romans told them, the Greeks told them, Shakespeare told them. The good guy wins, the bad guy loses. You know, the good guy gets the girl, you know, the bad guy doesn't. This guy dies, good, I'm glad he died, you know, whatever. <laughs> So pretty much every story has been written. So it's the journey that really keeps you in the seat. I believe that the only thing that keeps you in the seat is a guy like Brando or a few of those guys who have an unpredictability about them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I think it's the unpredictability that makes them a star because people don't get up and buy popcorn because they want to see how he's going to get What's from here the to there because it's not common 
And he doesn't go out of his way to make it uncommon. It's just he trusts his instinct and goes, and he's always available. I mean, a train could come through the room, and he'd, uh, did you see that? There was a train. I mean, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? Yes. So it's the, uh, I think it's the un- unpredictability is why I think I use that word with you. Like, yeah, that was helpful. With, with, and you told me the hark, huh? hark I hear the cannon roar was one of my favorites. <laughs> the guy that joke. gets the part yeah. and he rehearses it five ways to Sunday. Yeah. And then he walks out on stage and the cannons well, go a, off and yeah, he goes, he goes, what the fuck was that? Yeah, yeah. The guy gives a Shakespearean role. It was amazing. You play this guy. You go, Hark, I hear the cannons roar. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you get a lot of that. You know, your instinct is the best part of you. It's what makes me different than you or anybody else, and, you know, or any other actor. Like, you never think about it, but I remember thinking about it. I was a young guy, and I'm standing in line. There's 200 people going for a Broadway audition, right? So there's 200 guys waiting outside the theater, you know? And they have, like, these sheets, you know, here's two, you know, the scene, they hand it out. But you're only up to 10 people that go, you know? Then they go, then you get the sheet, you know, if you're 27th in line, you know? You... So everybody gets up and stands in this theater that's black. You can't see anybody. Some heads out there. Who knows where they are? You know, producer, director, the girlfriend. I don't know who's out there. Right. And then they go, that's the guy. We want him, right? So, wow, I got the part. That's great, right? So uh, now I'm an actor, so now I got to go work, right? So now I go work for three weeks. I come in for the first day of rehearsal. I go, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> That's not the guy we hired. You don't realize, like, why did they hire you? You did something on that stage that the other 300 guys didn't do. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, like, if I send an actor a script and, and it said, okay, you played a bad guy, that's number one. You know, right away they fall into the bad guy mold, whatever the hell that is. You can't say fuck you nicely, and you can't stab anybody in the eyeball in a nice way. It's written. So especially in movies where, unfortunately, I don't mean to disarm or make little of the writers because they allow you to do this, but words are very secondary. Film is all about behavior. It's not about words, right? I've never thought that way. Well, it's well, good, that's yeah. what, what made Brando or whatever special. It's like, like I say, you cannot say fuck you nicely, okay? It's written. Mm-hmm. You have to say it. Mm-hmm. You are hired to say it. Mm-hmm. So I remember a couple of times, like this one director who I won't mention because I had a little struggle with him, but he apologized later. Or I beat him up. One of the two. No, I never hit anybody. Uh, Me, a in, couple in, times. You on my shoot. because you got it. Yeah, you have to get it. That's the only so thing you listen to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the guy goes, uh, Jimmy, can you talk faster? Wow. No, you can't. I go, excuse me? Can you talk faster? No, 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 I don't think I can. Excuse me? I can talk like I have to take a piss, but I can't talk faster. What kind of direction is talking faster? Okay, can you be happy? No, I don't think so. So the point is, let's say I, I like the inference of um, there's an old lady on top of the stairs. She's in a wheelchair. She's 90 years old. Poor old lady, you know. And me, John, the bad guy, right? I come in, and your line is, you poor old bitch, or, you know, I'm going to kill you, right? And you push her down the stairs. This crippled old lady, you push her down a flight of stairs. Okay. Now, for example... Obviously, you can't do it, you know, it has to be something that this character would do throughout or the way he behaves. But let's say, for example, I chose to say, I love this old lady, this old lady, 
I mean, she brought me up. She did this. I love her. I love her more than I love my mother. You know, da da da, whatever. And the doctor told me that in ten minutes' time she's going to experience a pain that's unbelievable. It's like ten thousand times worse than any pain you've ever felt in your life. Okay, and I love her. So now, those same words, I say the words. But now I say I'm like, you know, out of love, like, I can't let that happen to you, okay? My brother and I go, you know, you poor, you poor old bitch, you know? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to put it downstairs. People go, holy shit, that was spooky, right? Right. Because I killed the fucking old lady. Excuse me, didn't mean to say lady. I, I killed her. So you cannot say fuck you nicely. That's an extreme example, but do you understand what I'm saying? So it's really all about behavior. Everything is being alive in here. You know, if something happened or something, if you don't feel alive in here, if you just find yourself uttering words, you know, and I was directing, I'd rather you just, you know, recite a poem or something. So that's part of unpredictability. But most importantly, if I send a script to this actor and it says, look at the part of John, I don't care who you are. The first time you read it, every time you come to John, subconsciously you slow down, right? And you read that part. Then you flip the page and it says John and you automatically slow down and you read. I guarantee that's the best you are going to be at that part because there's no thought it's your instinct that's taking over. Mm. I mean, you can obviously improve on that instinctive feeling, but not all the time, but I would say a great portion of the time that's probably as good as you're ever going to be. The first look, first glance. The first, yeah, because that's, again, what makes me different from you, Mm -hmm. and I haven't put all of that Hamlet shit in my head, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Hamlet shit, I made that up. Having done all the roles, and uh, what what excites you now? What would excite you? What would excite me? Yeah, what's exciting? Same thing that used to excite me. Like ass and, you know, I mean... Simple things. Yeah, the good things in life. Jay, you didn't like that answer. I'm sorry. No, the thing, the truth of the matter is, I just, well, I guess it's my interview, so it is about me. I was really, really lucky and fortunate, and it's, it's a luxury, because in the 70s, man, I mean, I worked with the best actors, the best directors, the best cinematographers, the best of everything. You know, not all together, all the time. There was no one But I had that opportunity. Cameras. No, but I'm saying, you know, there were actors. There were, you know, they weren't guys like from a surfboard who would look good. And, da, da, da. and I had the opportunity to pick material. Well, almost all of it until, you know, like when I did The Godfather for a long while, if there weren't 20 people dead by page 12, I didn't get the part. I mean, they, were, they had a lot of, you know, insight, these people. So they go, oh, you sing and dance? Nobody, you know, I finally did a picture where I sung and dance. They go. Well, you never said you could do it. Nobody ever asked me. I mean, you kept me killing people, you know, being a yeah. tough guy. But I remember you told me a good story where you had a serious shot with a race car where you had to walk into a long lens, and you were kind of rehearsing when I was asking you what choices you make, and you had made a choice where you were just kind of rehearsing what oh, you... Oh, it was for Howard Hawks. It was a terrible film called Line 7000. I played a race driver. Yes, and then I'm supposed to kill, you know, I kill this guy. This is it. You know, we're jealous and I run him into the wall, you know, like they do, but this guy gets killed, right? So I'm supposed to get out of the car and some actor who I blew a name on was, was overacting terribly, screaming and yelling at me, which is... I'm looking it up. No, you got it. Yeah, it don't matter. <laughs> he was just 
He should have been arrested on a 412. That's an overacting charge, whatever. But anyway, and all I did was just look straight out. I don't know, I don't remember, but I just was looking out and he was yelling and I literally was so concentrated on looking out to whatever, I had to look at him to see if he stopped yelling at me. Didn't hear a friggin' word he said. And when I looked at him and he stopped, I just walked away. So Howard Hawks said, Jimmy, what, what was that? <laughs> I said, well, Howard, um, and he was, you know, a great old man, you know. I said, did you ever kill anybody? He went, no. Me neither, you know, I don't think. <laughs> but uh, Me neither. So could you tell me what was odd about it? <laughs> he just really didn't have an answer, you know. But he kind of liked it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like, I don't know what it's like, you know. I'm finding out, like, you know. Because, I mean, that's something fresh. So, I mean, it's little things like that that, you know, you trust yourself to let it go on. And, you know, the greatest luxury in the world as an actor is to be able to fall on your ass. I mean, I was there for a little bit, you know, and I took chances and hard times will make a monkey eat red peppers. You know what I mean? You got to do it because you're broke or whatever. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but playing the same thing for four years or five years is not my idea of fun, you know? But I had my choice. I made some bad ones. I made some good ones. But I try to keep them really different. When I started, I did this one picture. The next picture I did with a straight, full Irish accent for no reason, just so they wouldn't remember that that was the guy that did the first one, you know? And that was kind of the idea of being fun because you got to be a child to be an actor. I mean, you got to act like you're 12 years old. I mean, I can be this person for two, three months, you know, then we shot pictures in three months, you know? So, for three days. So that was, uh, you know, that was it. So now what happened is. I got fairly popular and I could do whatever I wanted and, you know, I was spoiled. I didn't want to, I mean, I love Warren Beatty, but Warren making movies, producing movies, you know. I, I just wanted to get paid, do my job and go home, you know, and, and until I directed that picture. And it was fun going to work, you know, if they're fun. And one thing I could add, remind me where I was, but the most fun I've had and the thing that I've learned I think for sure, is that the nicest people that I've met in this business were always one of the best. I mean, all those really great people, you go, oh, I'm gonna work with Marlon, I'm gonna work with this one, I'm gonna work with... Because they don't have any, any bullshit to hide, you know? Everything else is like, you know, a decoy, like, oh, my dresser room sucks, you know, my makeup sucks, you know? That's a, what they call a diversionary tactic, you know? <laughs> they just because they have nothing to offer, so they distract you. You see, oh, they have nothing to offer. So The thing I used to take, which I treasure more than anything in the world, some of these young actors would come to me, good ones, and ask me questions. I wouldn't trade that for all the tea in China. People that I respect would ask me questions and look up to me. And then I realized that I was being like a complete friggin' hypocrite because I got forced into doing things for money, you know? I mean, there's nothing wrong with money. I, I, I love money, and my wives can tell you that. They can tell you how much they love money. But then I found myself like, okay, I gotta do this, you know, and I gotta do this. I gotta have seven years of college put away for the boys, because, you know, I went through this terrible thing. Where, well, you know that I got robbed and I didn't have any money. One morning I woke up and I was broke, you know? And um, that's when I started coaching. <laughs> I took care of that in a minute. But 
then I felt like, you know, it's, it's just not worth it. I just didn't feel good about myself and, you know, everything I preach to my kids and to guys who look up to me. So I said, I, I retire. I'm not going to do anything again. Going through this divorce to this beautiful lady I was married, and you know. But I had, you know, it was a thing I had to do. But I decided, like, okay, I got the kids taken care of. I retired. They go, my lawyers went nuts. You can't say I retire. Why can't I? Why? Well, you can't say that. I said, okay. So I made a statement, which never really made it out, but my lawyer somehow got it out there. He said this public record, which it wasn't because I never said it to anybody other than them. And I said, there's a big difference between wanting to work and having to work. So I'm retiring from having to work, okay? And like I said, the greatest treasure I've gotten from, that'd be corny, but from my life in this business is the respect that I get from the people that I respect. I wouldn't trade that for money or anything, ever. So I realized I was, you know, I was doing that. And, and that was more disturbing than even getting a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. Yeah, no, but, you know, I mean, it's nice to, you know, have integrity, but sometimes you can't afford to yeah, have let it. me know when I get Because I remember part. Scott I came to me part. once when he needed money, so Scott goes, Dad, you know, he needed money, and he had these three pictures. One was worse than the other, right? What do I do? I said, son, you can listen to me if I tell you? He goes, yeah, yeah, of course. Take the very, very worst one. Do that one. What are you talking about? Well, if the other one's so-so and the third one's got a chance to be... If you pick the worst one, it's never going to get seen. You understand? So you take the money. Nobody, obviously, they'll have to ch turn in channel 647 one night. Maybe they'll see it. It makes pick sense. the worst you, one. You want somebody to see the worst piece of crap you've ever seen? You know, okay. So that's what... That was the con method. And... Uh, the con That's method. what he did. <laughs> it's perfect. We gotta take pictures. And when you do Broadway, that's very unpredictable. Every time's different. No. No? Well, you try. But that's another one. You know, that's like this heightened reality. You know, even, even in movies, it's heightened reality. You know, people could never figure out. Bobby Duvall was probably the best guy ever to be off camera, right? I mean, when he was off camera. And I learned watching him and... I'll drop my pants, I'll do anything to get a laugh out of somebody. I mean, Cause you have to realize you can't be good in a bad scene. It's impossible. If the scene bad, you suck, right? So what I'm saying is it's a height reality. And the truth is the movie's probably the, the least stage. You always have to be, you know, make sure the audience can hear and you know. But the truth is the reason you're good off camera is it's the only time you ever see what you're really supposed to be looking at anyway in a scene. When you're on camera, you're looking at people and cameras and shit. If you learn how to do movies with a mirror, you'd be a genius. <laughs> so people are actually seeing what they're supposed to be seeing. <laughs> so how do you go from the Bronx to Hollywood? What's that well, like? Well, first of all, there's a couple of steps in between there. That's like a giant step. No, I was born in the Bronx, I think. I don't remember that far back, but my mother had to believe it. Though I was born in the Royal Hospital. I, I think I only lived there like six, seven weeks, then something like that. And my dad found a, an apartment in Sunnyside, 41st and Skillman. I moved from there and then went right to Hollywood. Didn't go to school, 
No, 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 like, you know, play school, nothing. Went right to Hollywood. My dad, he was a pretty tough guy. He was like uh, about five, nine and a half, about two and a quarter, you know. And, and it was a guy named Schatz was another one. And they used to go out like Tuesday nights, and Schatz was about 6'3", you know, 6'4". Both butchers, right? And he used to have these bun meetings, you know, when I was a baby. They had these bun meetings on 86th Street in Germantown, and it's really bun meetings, but the whole outfit, you know, the Nazi outfits and everything. So every Tuesday night, my father and Schatz went out Tuesday night, and they waited for these meetings to break up, and it'd be up around Central Park, and they never came home without two pair of boots. <laughs> you know, from the uniform. I had a fire escape full of boots, man. When I was, I mean, I was a little baby, I didn't know, but two pair of boots, that was the quota each. So, yeah. It's not much of a story, but it's interesting. It's a great think? story. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Those things didn't happen. So I jumped ahead. Sure did. Went to Hollywood. From New York to there was to nothing else town. to do. Yeah. No, I mean, I went to school and did all of that. Went to Michigan State for a year when I was 16. Not because I was bright, because my school wanted me out. <laughs> they wanted me out of there. I transferred to Hofstra, and there was nothing that really held my interest. And I saw the meat market looming, you know, bigger and bigger, you know, because I used to go to work with my dad and loved meat, which was just lots of fun, you know. So I don't know, one day I just, I walked into the neighborhood playhouse on 54th Street, and I don't know, I guess it's a little fateful because I walked in, school was about to start in um, 10 days. So I came in, I said, what can you do for I said, well, I want to interview to get in, you know, they go, yeah, but this is for next year, right? I go, no, this year, what do you mean? They said, well, you don't understand. They only take 30 guys and 30 women in the country. So they do three interviews over a course of a year. You do one in September, or you do one early, and then you do one at Christmas, and then one in June, and then you get invited back. So I go, I said, well, would you mind if I, uh, I just waited outside like Meisner or David Pressman's office? The guys were interviewing, why? Well, in case someone's late, or someone's early, or whatever. Just do what you like to do. I said, okay, so. Sure enough, I just sat outside the office, and sure enough, somebody wasn't on time, and I walked in. And um, I guess he thought I was nuts. They took me right away. So, on your first interview? Really crazy. No, interview, yeah, I don't know. I guess I convinced them I was a complete nut, and uh, I guess that's what was the, the requirement was. But that was a full school, you know, you took dance, you know, dance. The whole thing. Everything. You had to be full. That was bad, though, because I remember you know, like, in my neighborhood, I was like, you know, tough guy, whatever, you know. My neighborhood was not conducive to the arts, let's put it that way. So I was going to work with my dad down a meat market and we'd deliver meat, you know. So I had to get something for school. I told him I got into the school. So my dad, as tough as he was, he was good enough to, like, pay, it was like 800 bucks then to go to that school, you know. So <laughs> I said, Dad, I got to stop somewhere here on 8th Avenue to get something for school. Yeah, all right. So it's right here, they wait, you know. I'll run upstairs and get it. So you wait in the truck, and I run upstairs, and it's Capizio's, you know, this dance place. <laughs> like the shoe, Capizio. Yeah. So, that was a guy? Capizio is a no, person? No, no, it was uh, a place, a okay. dance place. Yeah. So they take out these little plastic bags, and they got like tights in them, mm -hmm. and a dance belt, and these little ballet slippers with the little thing on it, right? And I just got out of a football uniform. I go, this is plastic. Yeah, well, you got a brown paper bag or something, you know? I mean, no, it's a bag. You see, there's a clip, there's a button on the... No, no, you don't understand. You got a bag, something you can't see through, like a brown bag, you know? <laughs> so 
they looked all over. They got me a brown bag, and I threw the dance belt, you know, this leotard, dancers. Wrapped it up. I said, thanks, you know. Get in the truck. Drive. My pop says, what do you got in there? I go, nothing. It's just some stuff for school, you know? Yeah. Listen, what do you got in the bag? Dad, what's the matter with you? I just told you it's crap for school. What kind of crap is it for school? It's just stuff, you know? This went on and on. What's in a fucking bag? <laughs> I opened it. And I showed him this dance belt and his shoes. And all he did was whistle all the way home. <laughs> That's all he could do. He was so confused. I'm confused. <laughs> my son's got a dance belt and leotards in there. Oh, my God. So that was, uh, that was kind of fun. What do you remember on Thief? Scott introduced me to Willie Nelson because he met him when he was that young, right? Oh, no, that was the best. It. Willie, yeah, I had a fight with Willie's agent because, you know, I told Michael, I go, hey, this guy who plays David Oakleburtonu, <laughs> there's only two scenes in the movie, you know, but he's omnipresent because you always talk about him, you know, so I said, Willie, you know, there's this part you got to do. You want me to do it? I'll do it. No, 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 no. This has got nothing to do with friends. If you ask me to sing, I ain't doing it, okay? But this is like you. You don't have a guitar. You don't have a horse. You don't have a stupid hat. You got nothing, okay? It's just you, you know, and you're an inmate, you, you know. So he says, I'm, I'll do it. I'll do it, okay? So his agent, of course, hated me because he had just starred in two, you know, other movies. Big movies. Yeah. Yeah. So I was more worried about, like, Willie. <laughs> but Willie was great. In it. He was really great in it. So uh, we were friends. I met him at a, the Denver Rodeo, I think, like, in 73. I was rodeo in Denver. And he had just come out because he was a great studio musician, you know. Some guy says, hey, this is some funky band down here in this little bar, you know. It was like 50 people, you know, 60 people. And it was Willie and his sister and Paul and Mickey Raphael. That's the first time I met him, 70, early 70s. Was Michael still a maniac as a young guy or did he? Who? Michael Mann, he got such big Oh, films. he was crazy. No, well, I mean, I, he was one of my gifts to America. Michael was. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I was doing uh, Chapter 2 or something, and I come out, and there's this guy sitting on a chair outside my trailer, this little wooden chair, you know, this group. He says, can I talk to you, Mr. Mr. Con? So the last time you called me Mr. Con. So, he's, <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah, just like, I got to do another take. I don't know who it was, you know. As soon as I, I, I go inside, I'll do another take. Came out, came in, introduced himself to me. Gave me the script, but he, then I looked up, he had done one thing on television, which was pretty good, it was called The Jericho Mile, that he did with Peter Strauss, it was good. But the script was unbelievable. Mm. And in them days, I was so spoiled, you know, I was so lucky. Yeah. I mean, two days I put it together, you know. They did it, got Jerry Bruckheimer, you know, to produce. Yeah. And my brother co-produced. He was a producer, yeah. Co-producer. Did he produce? <laughs> yeah, he produced. Yeah. He showed up at one meeting, went to sleep in six months. <laughs> Fell asleep. Ronnie. Yeah. Amazing. He was amazing. And stole my car from the show, did everything. He was great. There was a film you were going to do with John Cassavetes, and then he oh, passed. Oh, was great. What was that film? I was in Florida. It was an old, it's a script that John had wrote, and I, I didn't know that John was sick. And I was in Miami, and I got a call from him. He said, Jimmy, yeah. He says, I got this great script. I want you and Gene Hackman to do it. You know, and I'm going to direct it. I said, oh, great. I don't even have to read it. I love it, you know? <laughs> so he goes, no, it's, it was a great story. It was about these two guys that want to commit suicide. One wanted to commit suicide, the other was like sick of his life, wanted to commit suicide. But I said, it's so boring to commit suicide. Like, let's just screw and do dope and do all that stuff until we die. Just keep doing drugs and girls. And 
I mean, that was the premise of the whole. So these two guys, they go and they get some motel up in bumfuck Idaho, wherever the hell it is. They go up there and they start bringing in the girls. Or so the whole premise is that one guy, he's having so much fun, he don't want to die. He doesn't. He, yeah. And the other guy's, you know, saying, you know, hey, you know, we came here for a reason. I don't care. This is too much fun. I mean, so that's pretty much was the premise. So he says, listen, when you're coming back, I told him, he says, oh, by the way, he says, look, when you see me, don't, you know, don't get shocked or anything. I go, what are you talking about? He says, well, I'm a little fat. and little, What are you talking about, John? He says, well, I got cirrhosis. What? What does that mean? I mean you know, you don't know what to say. What does it mean? He goes, it means I'm going to die. <laughs> I swear to God. Oh, what, what the hell? I mean, my, just like that. What if that's what it means? So come on home. <laughs> Hurry up. We never, obviously never uh, did. It was a great script. That's sad. Yeah. What else you got on that little sheet over there, there, boy? Find out. How about? Yeah, yeah, I got one. Oh, you do? There's a brown dune buggy, and it involves an actor driving around with a turban oh, on his head. Marlon. Who oh, would that be? Marlon was great. Marlon, I don't know, for whatever reason, I used to make him, I'd call a hello, and he'd start laughing, or he'd call me in the middle of the night. They asked me to do Superman. Do you know that? As his thing or as part? No, no, no. This was in the Salkin Brothers had it. Okay. And it was originally written by Mario Puzo when it was all tongue in cheek. It was hysterical. You know, then Richard got it and they made a regular, you know, a real picture out of it. Oh, it was great. It was like Superman. He he finds out he can fly and he starts showing off. He does loop the loops and stuff, you know. And there was one scene that typifies pretty much the way the whole script was written. It's like she's madly in love with Superman, right? So at the Globe, uh, you know, the, where the paper is, right, was physically set up for the camera that in order to get to Clark Kent's office, you had to walk through Lois Lane's office, right? There was no other way. You had to go through that. was a secretary, her office, then the secretary in his office. So there's no other way, and then a window. So he's walking around Superman one day, and he gets, he's all pissed off because he's Clark Kent, because he's pissed off at Superman, which is, of course, him. You know, and he's, he just wants it, so finally he goes, screw it. And he rips off his shirt and jacket and everything. You know, she saw him go in and he's got his Superman outfit. And he goes, Lois, come in here, right? <laughs> so Lois walks in and she looks at him and she goes, that's sweet, Clark, but, you know. <laughs> she walks out and he just looks in the mirror and he goes, maybe in a little tuck over here, you know, like he's done. So the whole thing was written like that. So Brandon called me one night and he goes, uh, Hey, Jimmy, come on, you gonna do this picture with me? I go, nah, nah, I can't, <laughs> I can't nah. do it, no. First of all, they changed, he goes, what do you mean, what, is it money? No, they offered me like stupid money, it was great. I says, you know they're gonna make two pictures out of it. He says, yeah, but come on, I says, you're gonna be there two weeks, but come on, well, I need some laughs, man, I gotta have some laughs. So I says, uh, nah. He says, come on, I'm doing it. I says, yeah, but you're not wearing a suit. And he went, <laughs> hung up, I didn't hear from him again. <laughs> so yeah, and I, I picked him up one day and I got a dune buggy. I had this like tan dune buggy, a brown dune buggy, with just a roll bar, mm -hmm. a two-seater, you know? Yeah, that's So awesome. he had just done this documentary about the Indians, you know, some of an Indian. There was a guy on Harrod Street right behind Doheny. I guess one of these chiefs lived there or something. He wanted to go by and See either pick up the thing or drop it off. So he said, come on, come up, you know, pick me up over there, and we'll go. I said, okay. So I took the dune buggy, <laughs> and I take it up to the house. 
He's going to go. I says, yeah, come on, let's go. And he looks and he says, what are you kidding me? What is, what is, what is, what is? I said, it's a car. It's got four wheels. What do you mean, what is it? Get in the friggin' thing. Come on, Jimmy. We can, like, Get in the car. So he gets in the car, right? Yeah. And we drive down Summit. We're going all the way to the back way. We cut down the bottom. And we hit Sunset and he takes his jacket off and he wraps it around his head. This <laughs> was like Marlon Brando riding in a dune buggy. That was pretty fun. Do you have a favorite movie, Jimmy? Yeah, well, as an actor, uh -huh. Thief I liked a lot. The character was pretty interesting. I, I mean, I, there, there was a few I had a good time on. Thank you. Thank you. That's my interview with James Kahn. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to thank James again for taking the time to sit with me. It's always a pleasure and an honor to work with the great James Kahn. <laughs>